given their lives up so that we might experience freedom, so that we can experience the hope that you want to place in our lives and remind us of how wonderful it is to be able to share your truth, to be able to live lives unhindered by those that are trying to force us into their own concepts or ideas of what is right or what is wrong. And we thank you for loving us and for providing us with this freedom. Let us use it for your good. Take care of those even today who are overseas, who are struggling with issues and questions and problems. Uh, Draw them close to you. Remind them you can take care of all of it. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow. So we've got this 4th of July thing going. and uh, Yeah, I wanted to repeat it. It was one of those things. And we're going to talk today about this next aspect that Paul discusses out of the book of Philippians. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. So you go through that Romans and Corinthians, then you go eat popcorn, and that's Philippians is the popcorn. It's that G-E-P. You know, so different, different tricks we come up with to try and find it in your Bibles. Other than that, you can always do it the easy way. Look in the front of your Bible, and it says, page so-and-so Philippians. And I go, oh, that works. So today we're going to deal with this next aspect that Paul tries to teach us in terms of living our life with joy or discovering joy and understanding uh, the peace that God wants to bring into our lives and the direction that He desires to bring to us and that the result of living with Christ according to God's purpose and direction is we find joy bubbles up into our lives. And it's a regular and consistent thing. Now, earlier we talked about the simple fact that in the first chapter, Paul kind of opens up and he clarifies to us that the first secret to joy is understanding and affirming your calling in Christ. That once you understand who you are as a servant of Christ, as you understand how God has called you with a particular image and purpose he's given you, then joy begins to come into our life regardless of circumstances. We find ourselves able to not live under but live over our circumstances and we find ourselves also able to live out our beliefs regardless of those who try to hold back us in that particular arena. Once that begins to happen, that's the first part that Paul is trying to teach them as he's in prison because he has lived out his beliefs. And he's saying, this is God's purpose. This is God's intention. This is God's plan. Therefore, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he moves into chapter 2 and he starts dealing with the next issue. And that issue, he talks about the necessity of checking our attitude. And that's what we talked about last week. Was that once we recognize our calling and we begin to affirm it, that then we need to check our attitude in relationship to the body of Christ, those that he has surrounded us with, that family that he's placed us within. And we need to check our attitude in relationship to our relationship with our leader Christ himself, how we're responding and submitting to him and being obedient to him. And we need to check our attitude within ourselves and say, what's really going on inside of me? Am I responding in a way? Am I experiencing the life that God wants me to experience? And if not, then we need to move to the next level. And that's where I think Paul goes next. And today what he's going to talk about is this interesting issue, and he uses this term that can be confusing for some of us. He says, you need to work out your salvation. Now, for those of us that have been Christians for any amount of time, we recognize that you cannot 
earn your salvation. You can't work for it because it's already been taken care of as a result of what Jesus did on the cross for us, providing us with a free gift from God. So then we look at this again. I say, he doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out. Very good. Your salvation. Work out your salvation. Work it out as you live it out, is how I put it. And that's the term I want to do today. And as we kind of walk through this, because I always like to give you something to hold on to, because if you're like me, I can't remember from week to week. And I preach it. So I try to give you a nice little tight thing that helps you to trigger those memories so God can speak to you more clearly. And so today, when I say work it out, I want you to say live it out. Okay, so I'm going to say work it out, and you say? Very good. Okay, so work it out. Good. And that's kind of the cry. So that's the directive that God has given us within this section of Scripture today. In Philippians chapter 2, we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That we've been redeemed with a price. And we need to show that we are worth that price. That in the Christian structure that we live in, we have far too many undernourished and overweight Christians who are struggling in their spiritual walk and their ability to interact one with another in a way that shows that they have changed because Christ has grabbed a hold of them and that in a very meaningful way, they're being transformed. If that's not happening, something's wrong. Some of you are thinking, yeah, that's not happening to me. And I say, yeah, that means something's wrong. You're right in your confusion. She said, what do I do? You need to... Work it out so you can... Exactly. So that's the process that Paul tries to teach about. So you need to have a daily workout, a regular workout, so you will experience transformation. Now, I was going to have Egypt come here and stand next to me today. And you would see the difference between one who works out and one who does not. But I thought it was a bit too extreme. So I didn't do it. And I looked bad. Here are my workout tools. Hey. Nice and green, very, very earthy. Was that my ex-associate? Here is, oh, one of Egypt's one-sided curling process. That's sick. But God's directive here is telling us that you need to be spiritually working out. And let me tell you something. I'm not going to brag. Yes, I am. Egypt would tell you that in the workout process of spirituality, he's a wimp. And I'm honking big. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. Now, Egypt's not a wimp either in that category. Egypt works out regularly both in his spirit and with his, with his body. And God has given him that purpose and that intention. And God has called us to work out on a regular, consistent basis. In fact, he uses the term with fear and trembling we're working out. Because we're concerned that we might fall back into that category that we were before we started working out. I had a close friend of mine who had become a about my size, and he showed me an old picture of himself when he used to work out, and he was, he looked like Egypt. The guy was huge. 
And I said, what was that all about? And he said, he said, Lee, this is what I was. And he had all these stretch marks all over his body. He said, this is what I was, but see, I was taking steroids. It wasn't whom God made me to be. It was whom I strive to be. And I went against God's directive and God's understanding of who I was supposed to be. And so I had to learn to do away with that. And that was one of the hardest things in my life because I live for those muscles and for that look. And that, even that sense that other people look at me with adulation, they'd go, man, you are buff. You're a beast. And would be like, yeah. He said, now they look at me and they go, boy, you're skinny. God has called us individually with a particular calling, a particular intention, a particular understanding, a particular attitude to work out our salvation so that we can find ourselves not only experiencing joy in our life, but providing joy for the lives of others around us. Because that's always God's intention with everyone and everything that he makes. Philippians chapter 2. Many of you are already there. We're going to start with verse 11. I'm going to read through 11 through 30. And then we're going to dig into the passage itself. We begin actually with verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my absence, but much more. In my absence, not only my presence, but much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both the will and the act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the skies as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service that comes from your faith, I'm glad. In fact, I rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Wow, that's a powerful statement about Paul here. Then he moves on to say this. I'm going to give you some specifics. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I've got no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. And I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back also Epaphroditus, my brother, my co-worker, my fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. He longs for all of you and he's distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was. In fact, he almost died. But God had mercy on him and on me so that he spared me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. He almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourself were unable to give me. Father, speak to us 
clarify your word that we might understand the truths you are teaching Paul as he tries to teach us. Let us respond to them, interact with them, and experience what you have for us. For we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this entire passage is dual in its focus. First of all, Paul is talking about the necessity of working out, and he gives us some directions on how to, and then he points to himself as one who does, and then he goes more specifically to Timothy and Epaphroditus, two other men who also work out on a regular basis and show their faith in specific ways. So you can't just say, well, after all, Paul was an apostle. We could never be like him. And he says, oh, well, what about Timothy? In fact, what about Epaphroditus, who came from your church? You sent him to me, thank you so very much, to meet some needs that I have, and he met them. And he almost died in the process. And boy, when he comes back, you'd best honor him, because he almost died to do what you asked him to do. Powerful statements of direction and calling. And I kind of broke it down into two sections. The first one I talked about, there are certain characteristics of a friend who is joyful, full of joy. A friend who is full of joy is one who exudes this joy and this contentment and this peace and this wisdom and this understanding, and it pours out upon other people. And, and that person is always, it's always someone who is working out their salvation. If you want friend... If you want joy to be your friend, then you have to have a daily workout. It will not happen otherwise. If you want muscles of joy, you've got to work out to get them. They won't just happen because you woke up this morning. They won't. And that's what Paul is trying to teach us here. And he's saying you need to use the right exercises for the right muscles. These characteristics that we need to see here. And the first one is in relationship to the, to the will muscle. The will muscle. Uh, I love the Psalms where it says this. It's one of the first scriptures I ever learned. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my remember, right? path. Right, and A light unto my path. And It's an interesting picture in relationship to God's word and how it infects us and affects us. So, so the first characteristic of a joyful friend is a strong will. It's a strong will. And that will in relationship to understanding the word of God and living according to the directives with it. Um, the purpose of the lamp and the light are totally different in this area. One is for short steps, and the other one is for long term. So you might even use it. One's a flashlight, and the other one's a floodlight, if you want to get that picture. So the first one, they would actually have something on their feet that would be clamped onto their leg, where when they would step, they could see where they were stepping. And then they would have a torch in their hand to see where they were going. And this is the picture of God's Word. It both shows us the next step we need to take and also shows the direction that we need to be going in. So it shows us the path and it shows us the specific issues that we have to deal with as we're walking along the path so that we can step correctly and not find ourselves stepping on any landmines that will bring destruction into our lives. Because though God says it's on the path, there are still a variety of landmines that we have to deal with and struggle with. And sometimes we step on them and we have to deal with the consequences of those things as well. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path so I can see and I won't stumble. The close and the far. Mark Twain once put it this way. He said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. 
You see, the struggle in my life when I talk to most people, they say, well, how do I know God's will? And I say, well, I think you know God's will. Let's talk about it as we begin to walk things through. They did. They, they knew God's will. I said, see, the issue isn't that you know God's will. The issue is, will you put into place that which you know, even though there's parts of it that you don't know? There will always be parts of it that you don't know. There will always be questions that are not fully answered. As he answers one, it opens up a whole deluge of other questions. And God is saying, as I answer this, move forward to what I provide you with. If you want to be a joyful friend, then you have to exercise your will as you submit it to the Word of God. And we have to, to force our lifestyles side, that part of us that wants to be independent of God's direction and wants to be egotistical and say, well, look who I am. Look what I know. Look what I can do. When God is saying, no, you, you really don't have any ability to do any of these things unless I give you that ability. And as you submit to me, I will give it to you. But you need to recognize that that's how it's been provided. That you live in a land that's underwater and that the only way you can breathe is I give you breath to breathe. And you keep thinking, well, I can do it on my own. No, you can't. And that's the, the tenement. It's the foundation of the Christian faith in relationship to our will that only as we submit our will to God are we able to accomplish the will of God. So he gives us both the ability and the energy to accomplish his purpose. As we submit and take pride in, in God's success in our life, and we give praise, and we hear the applause of the Spirit. See, in that area, we have to work it out before we, what? Live it out. You see, that? that's a very hard thing, folks. I made this simple here, but it's, it's, it's not simple. It's very, very hard to submit my will to God. I rarely want to submit my will to God. And that's the struggle that we come through. He says, but if you really want God's joy and God's peace and God's contentment in your life, the first thing you have to do is submit your will. Work out your salvation by submitting your will. Second characteristic is our emotions. Our emotions. Joyful friends work on their emotions. He says, now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, then, or it says so that, it means then you have sincere love for your brothers. So love one another deeply from the heart. You see, when we submit to God's will and we yield to him, we say, okay, Lord, do your will in my life. Guide me as you wish. Then what happens, but I can tell you miraculous story after miraculous story in my own life, is you will have love for your brothers and sisters. You will have a need to care for them and to support them and to show compassion towards them. And he says, but that will not happen easily. You have to work it out because sometimes when you show love to other people, they will reject that love. They will resist that love. You haven't learned how to give it appropriately. You don't understand the process of living those emotions out. So then you begin to hide behind and say, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. No, you need, to, you need to work it out so that you can what? Exactly. So the process that comes into play here is that emotions come from our hearts. And that's a hard place to get them from because typically my emotions come from my, actually, flesh, from my mind, from my ideas. And I have limited joy. I have happiness that pops up and goes down. I really want that. And then after I get it, I go, I didn't really want that. 
That's not what I really, I want this. And we go on and on and on with this silliness, not understanding that joy only comes as we submit our will and then our emotions to the workout that God has called us to. We start with the will, we move to the emotions. It's not a passive workout, it's a powerful one, and it can be very, very painful. When you choose to love people, it will be painful. And anyone that says it's not going to be painful just doesn't understand what it's about or have an experience of themselves. They're not working out. They're not doing it. It's very painful. There's some of you here that I've loved, and it's been very painful. And there's some of you who have loved me, and it's been very painful because I haven't responded to you in the manner that you would wish for me to or that I should have. But the call of love that God gives to us when we submit our will is not one that's a love if you give it back. It's a love that I give, period. There is no quid pro quo in love. There is none. And we struggle with that in our marriages, in our relationships, one with another. And that's why it's a workout. That's why it's a workout. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And this next aspect is the values. So we have a will and we have an emotions. And then we've got values that we have to work out. You see, our values, the system by which we recognize our values determines our lifestyle. Have you thought through and determined what your values are? Can you express them if someone asks you what they are? Why you hold on to them? What is your good purpose? According to his good purpose. What are your financial values? Who's first in your life? Is it you or is it God? Are you a manager of the finances God has provided? Or are you an owner of that which is and you get to determine how it's used and how it's worked out? Are you submitting your will to God in this arena? The reason Jesus speaks to this so often to me was really simple because I'm a pragmatic kind of guy. It's easy to tell. All I have to do, and I do it every year, and sometimes I'm excited and sometimes not so, is take a look at my checkbook and say, how did I use my funds last year? How much did I literally give to God's kingdom? And how much did I keep for Lee? And how did I make those decisions? Did I submit to God's directive and will in them? Or did I just kind of say, you know, God, I just got to have it. I'm sorry. You see, we begin to find out if we're working according to his purpose or according to ours. And if you work according to your own, you will lose your joy. And you'll fall into greed and all kinds of other issues because you haven't understood the necessity of working it out so you can what? You see, that's a tough live it out, isn't it? Isn't that hard? I start talking about your money, you're starting to go, oh, pastor, don't do that. Well, the reason we don't want to do that and that I don't like to do it is because it's so concrete. It's just right in your face. I can't deny it. All the other stuff I can kind of wiggle around. I can't wiggle around that. I'm stuck. So Jesus speaks to it on a regular basis. What about sexuality? This is another pretty concrete one. Your values in relationship to sexuality. You know, pornography is okay as long as... Oh, really? And you start to fill in the blank. Well, and nudity is okay as long as... They look good. <laughs> I've been to... I, I was in... A nudist thing. I was in Jamaica and they had a nudist beach. And I was on. I thought, these people desperately need clothes. 
Whew. I was like, oh, this is not a happy time. <laughs> I'm not closing my eyes because I don't want to see. I don't want to see. It's not good. But uh, your sexuality, what are your values in reality? You see, are you willing to, to work them out so you can what? Yeah, and that's the issue we start coming into. We say, whoa, how does that one work on me? Issues of premarital sex. Issues of adultery. Some of you say, well, I know adultery is wrong. But pre-, and I go, okay, interesting, huh? You see, you begin to do a smorgasbord. You begin to pick and choose. Well, God, I like this one, but I don't like that one. And, I, and God's saying, you need to submit your will to me, your emotion to me, and your values to me. Because if you'll submit to me, then you will have that which you want more than anything in the world. But you must submit to me. What about truth? So I would say, oh, well, we all want to have truth. Really? When is it okay to lie? Well, the IRS. Taxes. Come on. Ah. We could go on, couldn't we? <laughs> I'm not going to go there anymore because I'm going, oh, I could get inappropriate here real quick. I'd be like, oh, I'll get myself in big trouble if I'm not careful. But we decide where we're going to lie and where we're not. Well, then it's okay to lie. It's a little white lie. It's a little, and, and it's difficult because, uh, let me tell you, is, is it okay to lie to somebody? You have a case of Bibles in your trunk, and the guy says, you know, you can go through, but what's in your trunk? And you know that it's illegal to bring Bibles in this. We're going to give it to everybody. Is it okay for you to say nothing? And there's different groups who've come to different conclusions on that. Concerning God's ability or God's desire or God's direction. And I leave it to you to make the answer. You see, it's not always that simple. But it often is that simple. Not always, but often. And in your values in relationship to truth, it should be simple most of the time. And what I mean by that is like 95%. It's simple. That's wrong. That's not right. Here, speak the truth. Do the right thing. Despite what you see as the immediate consequences. And what's honorable? What's dishonorable? What's the difference between the two? What about relationships? What are the cost of a friendship? Where do you draw the line? Uh, something I like to do periodically is I just kind of go do my ABCs. I kind of do A through Z and I say, okay. And I come out come up with an A and I say, okay, what's a value in relationship to an A? Maybe it's aardvarks, how I treat aardvarks. Okay. Yeah. You start having fun with it. You start walking through and suddenly what happens is your values start showing themselves where they really are. And you get some concern. Hmm. Is that God's value? Is that his purpose in me? Is that his direction in me? See, Paul's directive here is simple. He says, no liposuction. Sorry. There's no easy way to get rid of the fat. You have to work it out. In fact, he nails this in right after that. He says, you've got to work it out. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Do nothing without what? Complaining or arguing. I said our elders meeting here just a Thursday night and we had a meeting. And I, one of the other elders there, we actually started arguing <laughs> over something really silly and it was it was my fault. I was like and we got through it and we did and I got through it and I thought am I really arguing over this? 
this is not from God. I apologized and said, I'll take care of that. But where did that ego thing come from? How did that creep in there? Where suddenly I thought that I had the right and the will to interact in this manner that was complaining and arguing. Because I'm the number one person who will tell you all the time, you guys are not supposed to what? Complain or argue. <laughs> I'm all in your face over it. But sometimes we just need to circle that in our life. Am I without complaining? Do I have this low, suppressed conversation with myself as I mutter and I grumble and I negatively think about why they are wrong and I'm whining and I'm moaning? Or I start to argue about my rights and I start to stir up dissension and distrust and doubt and loyalty and falls into gossip. And I start drawing people into negative actions. That's not God's purpose and direction for my life. See, that's clear. So that you may become. Not that you are. So that you may become. Blameless. Free from defect. Pure. Innocent. Not guilty. No. Innocent. There's a difference. That's one of the things I dislike about our legal system. They don't say you're innocent. They just say you're not guilty. I go, dude, I was innocent. Well, we'll declare you not guilty. That's the best we're going to do. So you walk around for the rest of your life because you were brought to jail for that. And this is Paul brought into that position and he's declared not guilty. He is going to be let out of prison in this case. He serves for two years and they let him go. He will come back the next time and be martyred. Not guilty, but, well, you know how it is. We can't convict everybody. See that subtle thing that comes on in there? Always come into play. Blameless to a group of people, a society, a world that has no light. You will become light to them. A radiant blaze, a reflection of God that gives others the ability to walk in the path that God wants us to walk in and to see the direction that they need to go in as they follow you. So Paul will say in a minute, follow me. I'm walking the path. Because we live in a depraved group. It's, it, it's really an interesting word here. that It literally means kidnapped. And, and the picture is, is uh, the best one I could come up with as I walked through it was, do you understand the term Stockholm Syndrome? The Stockholm Syndrome is a syndrome which people that become captured somehow turn into, they, they begin to look at their abductor as somebody that loves them and cares about them. And they fall into this trap of darkness. So they will literally fight the people trying to rescue them because they think somehow this person who abducted them has become their friend. And that's what Paul means by this depraved, darkened minds. He said, what a, what a horrible thing. And you need desperately to hold out the word of life so that they might have the opportunity to experience life. And that's why you need to work out so that you can what? Live it out. And as we live it out, then other people are able to see for a short period of time and then interact with God, and they themselves become transformed and are saved, and then begin to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. 
hold out the word of life on a regular basis. Our salvation is clear, and I have no fear of that. But I do have fear regularly of working out my salvation incorrectly, of, of exaggerating muscle areas and causing myself to be a freak rather than one who is growing regularly and appropriately in all areas of my life and my walk with God. So that when others see me, they see someone who reflects Christ himself and that they're able to follow and feel comfortable because they see that reality of life and of love and appropriateness. So we work out all three muscles, our will and our emotion and our values. And then we're able to hold out against our flesh that tries desperately to stop us from doing that regularly and consistently because it does not want to be humiliated. Paul transitions in this idea of working out into people who are living. And he starts off with himself. He says, rejoice over the sacrifice of my life if that's what's needed. If that is God's purpose and plan, then rejoice over that. Do not let yourself find yourself in the sense of agony. Why did Paul have to die? Why was Paul put in that prison? Why would God do this? He says, you need to learn to rejoice over God's purpose in your life and the lives of those around you. If that is the calling and the directive, he doesn't know right now because I think Paul is seen so far ahead in his, in his walk and his direction with God that he misinterprets the fact that he's going to be martyred in a couple of years, but not now. He's going to be let out. So he said, I think I'm getting out, but, there's, but I got this kind of vague thing. And what he's doing is he will be back in Rome, same place, different prison, and then he will be put to death. But not this time. This time he'll go out and he'll have one final opportunity to interact with his friends and all those whose lives he's touched and who are working out. And so he says, know my joy. It's not in vain. All that I did in terms of my faith and my directive and the clarification of what God is and what he's done, it wasn't in vain. I, I rejoice because of you. See, that's his cry here as he pulls in. And he kind of pulls back and he says, no, but let me look, talk to you about some wonderful friends of my own. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you so that I may be cheered also when I receive news about you. I don't have anybody else like him. He is generally interested in your welfare and the calling and the direction of Christ. He is really not interested in himself. I don't know anybody else that's like that, he says. Well, Epaphroditus. See, Paul gets a little bit self-oriented here. And I think it's understandable. He's going through a tough time. And he gets a little bit irritated. And he says, there's nobody else who looks after Christ's interests. And I go, Paul, you're going to turn right around in a minute and tell me, except for Epaphroditus too. And then he's going to fall back into an understanding, reminder again of all that God has done. Paul struggles like everyone does. He doesn't have perfection. But he says, look at Timothy. Look at Epaphroditus. In terms of somebody to walk at, first of all, he has genuine concern. And he has this, this desire and willingness to be your friend. He cares about each one of you. And when you're around him, you feel comfortable. You know people like that, don't you? I could point out some I'm not going to today. But I could point out different people and say, you know, that person, when you're around them, everybody wants to be their friend. Why? Because they're a good friend. That's why. People tell me I don't have any friends. I go... There's only one reason you don't have friends. Okay? 
Are you ready? You ready? You suck as a friend. There it is. So if you want to have friends, be somebody that is a friend, that has the qualities in their life that other people want. That is who Timothy was. He had genuine concern. Be genuinely concerned about somebody instead of, I wonder what I'm going to get from them if I do that. What am I going to get back from them if I do that? How am I going to benefit from that if I do that? Genuine concern means I don't even consider getting anything back. That's not even in my mind. There's a man who has many companions, the scripture says, and they come to what? What does it say? Ruin. Huh? But there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You can't have a lot of friends. Because friendships demand certain responses one to another. I have a certain amount of people I would call friends in this church. They are my friends. Some of you know some of who they are. Okay? My, my boys always kid about me. Well, you're, they know who my friends are. And you know why they know who my friends are? Because they know that person would respond to me at any point in time and I would respond to them. And we have chosen to be friends one to another. And that's a commitment and a value and a decision that calls for something. David and Jonathan, same thing back in Old Testament. These guys were bound together. They were soul brothers to call. After Jonathan dies, David writes a, a poem about him, a song, writes a song about his friend Jonathan, whom he loved so deeply, whose father was so mixed up in evil. And they understood the commitment one to another. And that which was called for in it. Because you see, friends see and meet the need before you even ask. Let's watch this clip real quick as we finish up this. Your need before you have to beg. And you heard the cry of his friend. He said, what do you got to be sorry about? Meaning, I can't believe I let it come to this. Why didn't I see before? I should have been the one to ask them for you. This is Paul's cry in relationship to Timothy. He says, I desperately need him. He's the only one who really cares. But you need him more. And so I'm going to send him to you. So you can experience the joy that I've experienced of having someone who is truly a man of God. He is remarkable. He has genuine concern. And he will accept you unconditionally as Christ accepted each one of us. Without any thought of changing you or making you something else, He will accept you as you are. And He will help you become who you need to be. Because He's working it out so that you can what? Live it out. And that's what He's doing. He said, so I bring Timothy and I send him to you. 
And not only is a man of unconditional acceptance and of genuine interest, but he has, he's truthfully transparent. He's truthfully transparent. He can be counted on. He's proven himself over and over and over again. And in your own life, as his iron strikes against yours, you can be assured that you will be sharpened, not dulled. That you will become the person that God desires for you to become as you learn from him how to walk in integrity and to work righteousness and to speak truth. Because you see... That's who Timothy is, this amazing son, he uses that term then, of mine, who I'm going to send to you. And you could add, and I will be all alone. Wow. My goodness. You have to work out your salvation, your wills, your emotion, your values, and you live them out with truthful transparency and genuine concern and unconditional acceptance. And those are painful qualities to live with. They're hard. But if you do this, you'll find yourself welcoming your friends with great joy. As he says, welcome Epaphroditus with great joy and, and honor men like him. He almost died for the work of Christ, but God had mercy on me and kept him alive. He risked his life to do what you asked him to do, to care for me and to love me and to be around me. But now it's time for him to go back. Welcome him with great joy and wonderful honor. Wow. And so Paul closes up this particular chapter of his letter. And we're like, my goodness, Paul, if we read this carefully, this is an incredibly emotional statement, a powerful statement about our calling to work it out so we can live it out. Yeah. And when that happens, that's when life changes. It's not about big church. It's not about little church. It's not about music. It's not about messages. It's about life relationship with Christ that transforms us so much that when we interact with those around us, they see and experience the word of life. When I ask the worship band to come up and they're going to close us uh, with a couple of special songs. Um, and, and as they get ready for that, uh, we've got to go back to the fundamentals in our life. And, and when you come back to the fundamentals, it helps you understand the workout process. Uh, we start off with the ABCs. The first thing we do is we have to admit that we're a sinner. Do you see that submission of will? That's where we started with Christ. I came to him and I said, Lord, I have so much sin and brokenness in my life and I desperately need help and I don't know why you would want to but I admit my need and then you move to the B which is simply believe that he's the only one that can meet that need and he does he not only forgives us and cleanses us from sin as we asked him but he transforms us and we find ourselves in this powerful opportunity 
to become what he calls born again. Born again. We have that chance to experience this transformative process. And he says, now claim me as Lord. Declare me as Lord. Because every knee will bow. Eventually, everybody's going to say, He is Lord. Say that with me. He is Lord. Everyone's going to say it at one point in time. Everyone will bow their knees and say, He is Lord. He said, but if you do it now, then you will begin to be enabled to live a life that's totally different. If you're willing to work it out. And that's the choice that we have on a daily basis. As I shared with the Lord this morning, I said, Oh, Father, help me. Help me to work it out. Because I'm just not strong enough. Father, thank you for your love. And we pray today that we might be friends like Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul. Men, in this case, who loved you deeply and who chose to reflect that love in their interactives one with another. That as they encountered people, they shared with them your wondrous truth and shared the word of life. Grant us the ability to do that as well this week. Honor us, Lord, as we set aside an offering for you even today. And we have an opportunity to say, this is what I believe. This is whom I serve. Take these funds, Lord, and change them into lives brought to you. Transform lives. And we will give you praise. Use it according to your will. Take my life as an offering and take this offering as a directive and a statement saying, I not only love you, I trust you. And we ask this in Jesus' name.